0: Is there evidence to believe the Gospels? The Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are four accounts of Jesus' life and teachings while on earth. But should we accept them as historically accurate? What evidence is there that the recorded events actually happened? Presenting a case for the historical reliability of the Gospels, New Testament scholar Peter Williams examines evidence from non-Christian sources assesses how accurately the four biblical accounts reflect the cultural context of their day, and compares different accounts of the same events and looks at how these texts were handed down throughout the centuries. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Biblical Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Jonathan Wright, your host. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Peter J. Williams about his new book, Can We Trust the Gospels? Dr. Williams is the Principal of Tyndale House, Cambridge, Chair of the International Greek New Testament Project, and a member of the ESV Translation Oversight Committee. Dr. Williams, welcome to the show.
1: Great to be with you.
0: Thank you. Yeah, I wonder if you could just begin the interview by telling us a bit about yourself and and how you came to be interested in this subject.
1: Well, I'm uh, 48, and I'm English, and uh, you can hear me, yeah? Uh, good. Uh, and... Uh, I've been studying the Bible for quite a while. I was brought up in a Christian family and uh, managed to uh, go to one of those uh, state schools where they actually taught Greek, which was an amazing privilege. And so um, from that, I then found we had an absolutely wonderful teacher who got me into uh, learning Greek and Latin. And uh, I think I saw an opening there as a Bible translator. So I went to university, actually. Uh, to Cambridge uh, to do an undergraduate degree and the undergrad degree was in Greek, Latin, Hebrew and Aramaic because I wanted to learn all the languages that helped me to do with looking at the ancient world of the Bible Um, and it was over time that I came to see that actually you know there's also a need to be uh, for biblical scholars so I um, pursued that i actually did a phd relating to old testament the syriac old testament uh, but have gradually crept my way over to the new testament and so i've been studying that more recently
0: wow that is awesome well as we approach the subject of your your book um why don't you just tell us how you came to write this book what was kind of the interest behind putting together this project
1: well, I thought about it over twenty years ago. So I'm, you know, uh, I've been thinking about it for a long time, and I've been speaking on the subject. Um, and really, it seemed to me that there was a niche because uh, no one seemed to write a short book from a scholar on the reliability of the old, of the New Testament and particularly the Gospels, which was not aimed at the particular conspiracy theories of the day so you know dan brown's da vinci code or whatever it comes out you get books responding to that but it's actually looking to lay out a programmatic short case so the context i see my book being used is particularly if someone has uh you know is hearing about christianity uh, for the first time or they're getting interested in uh, christianity the question they want to know is look can i trust these accounts of Jesus' life and so it seemed to me that there was a need for a short book that could be sufficiently cheap that you could hand it out to friends, sufficiently reliable that you're not going to be cringing, because I try not to have anything too eccentric um, in um, in the book by way of view, so I'm not saying that the Gospels were written up in a particular year when we don't know that, try to make sure that everything's very, um, you know, uh, tested, it doesn't depend on a particular theory of the relationships between the Gospels and so on. Um And to have that as a short book. Now there are longer books on the subject, such as Craig Blomberg's wonderful uh, historical reliability of the Gospels. That's great, but that's much more aimed at people who are studying theology. So it will talk about things like redaction criticism and all sorts of things that someone who is inquiring about Christianity and the Gospels doesn't actually need to know about. I mean, that that's a um, it's a discussion amongst scholars. I wanted to lay out a case for let's say, how does an engineer, how does someone who um, is um, maybe they're trained in history in another area, maybe they are just some, someone who hasn't uh, studied at university or anything like that, how can they know um, that the Gospels are reliable? And yet, how can this, this book also work? So you can give it to a university professor, and I think you can. Um, so I tried not to presuppose any information, but also when I do give a reference, I will tell you, you know, you can look this up in the Journal of the Royal Statistical Society or that you can look up this manuscript with a particular call number and this is how we know when manuscripts are dated and try and fill in all of the gaps that there are. So it, it's, um you know, I've, I've, I was surprised over the last 20 years that no one's written the book. Um, slightly in the ilk of F.F. Um, Bruce's The New Testament Documents Are They Reliable, which is about 60 years old, Um <clears throat> but different also because I think uh, the uh, scholarly framework in which he's writing uh, back then was different.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And it definitely fit within that category of a a very needed work. Um, So you begin chapter one with historical statements from non-Christian sources. Why do you begin there? And could you explain maybe the importance of extra biblical accounts surrounding the Gospels?
1: Yeah, and even before I I do that, I have this uh, very brief introduction, which is just over a page on the subject of trust, just trying to say, look, everyone does this, because I think otherwise people think that um, I'm asking for some peculiarly mystical kind of faith. Um, And, you know, everyone's already exercising trust. A reason to start with non-Christian sources uh, is I think that uh, a typical non-Christian will feel um, that they're less likely to be... uh, Uh, be biased towards Christianity. So they're not neutral, they're not perfect, um, but they also do more work than a lot of people think that they do. So when you read the accounts in a detailed way, you can actually see a picture of Christianity emerging, which is the most natural reading the easiest reading now there are there are more complicated readings you could make of these texts such as you could say that really there's a lot of hyperbole going on about numbers and uh, you know it wasn't really like this and they really only got their information from christians and so they're not independent sources and people do this i mean you know people are going to debate everything um but if you look at what is the the simplest reading of these then they portray a picture of christianity spreading far and fast large numbers of people becoming christians and it's very difficult being a christian um and they also uh, show us how christians faithfully transmit texts which disagree with them so you know the fact they've been copied reliably over time so uh, these are key things i think you can establish even from the very word christ uh, a certain belief about who this person is because uh, that's a Uh, you know, a fundamentally uh, Jewish term, Uh, you know, it's a Latin, Christus, Latin for Greek Christos, which comes from, you know, the Hebrew uh, Messiah, Mashiach. And, And so, you know, that any group who is following a person who is named Christ have to believe certain things about him or are likely to believe certain things about him. So we build up a picture like that.
0: Yeah, excellent. Yeah, and then so chapter two then moves and and orients the reader to the literary material of the gospels, and I just would love to hear your take on why categorizing the gospels genre is helpful for this debate.
1: Yeah, so I mean, I don't want to. I mean, some people write and say, you know, the the um, would make the case that the the gospels are a particular sort of biography, and and that's all fine. Um, I I want to give people the basics, such as. Uh, okay, so there are these gospels. Where are our earliest manuscripts? Well, you know, you can go to Dublin and you can get a um, a copy which has something of all four gospels, and that's probably early third century and probably comes from Egypt. So at least we know by that stage someone has um, all four gospels. It's not a matter of some council in the fourth century, a hundred years later, deciding uh, that we should have these gospels already. Uh, There's precedent as you build up that picture. You then build up a picture of what what it means to have four. And and that compares pretty well with the most famous person alive at the time of Jesus, namely the Emperor Tiberius. Funnily enough, we have basically four biographies about him. And on the whole, uh, one exception, they are more distant in time, I think, than the um, four Gospels. They're also in later manuscripts and so on. So that's all part of the building up of the pictures that then we want to say, well, When we dig down uh, into these, uh, what can we say about their authorship? And I want to make a case that um, what they're presented as historically, you know, in tradition is Matthew and John being by eyewitnesses, Mark and Luke not being. Starting with the uh, Mark and John, then, of course, there's no particular reason why anyone would put their names on books. Um, since they're not even of the 12 disciples. uh, Why would anyone put those names on if they weren't genuine? So I think you can make a good case they are genuine. Then you're going to Matthew and John. And, you know, I want to make a case uh, that um, they're reliable. In fact, one of the surprising things really is that um, people um, generally don't make much of of Matthew's gospel. They they tend to be dismissive of its reliability. Um, evangelical apologetics tends to be focusing on Luke and the prologue to Luke and how that's reliable, often focusing on Mark with a strong emphasis on Mark and priority. Mark Mark was the ver- earliest written gospel, so that's reliable. Um, Richard Borkham's work is based on Mark and John. Um, uh, F. F. Bruce tends to major on Luke. And I, where where's Matthew coming in so so I've I've tried to make a bit more of Matthew uh throughout the argument of, of how there are signs of reliability there
0: um and then uh chapter three just is an amazing it's a jam-packed chapter um with fascinating and compelling arguments I think it does a lot of the heavy lifting of this book um why don't you tell us about your argument about the geographical and and cultural knowledge of the gospel authors and how that adds to the reliability of the gospels?
1: Yes. Well, I mean, it's, it's a disproportionate length of the, of the, of the book. Uh, You know, it's probably about a third of the book or something is, is this book, you know, did the gospel authors know their stuff? But the thing about this is we can effectively test authors, um, implied knowledge or claimed knowledge and so, this is a very democratizing thing about the Gospels that anyone can throw open a page of the Gospels and they can see things where the Gospels are claiming to have knowledge, such as the names of towns. So, we simply look at all the names of towns, villages, cities they have in there, and let's start by listing them. And you find when they list them, there's quite a few of them. That compares very well with any other written source of uh, the period and exceedingly well when you compare it with our apocryphal gospels that really don't seem to have much clue about um geography you then dig down a little bit more could they have got those names of towns from any other books well the answer is no they can't because there's no other books that we know of that have those that particular list they can't have got them all from each other because they got different ones and they seem to know the rough layout um so all of these things start building a picture of, well, at least they've had to have done some research. I mean, it doesn't mean that the story is true, but they it's not trivially, superficially wrong. So I then um, go into traveling times and um, look into where the land goes up and down. They get this sort of thing right. Gardens, bodies of water, and essentially, there are two ways of getting this information. Either you've lived in the land and it's just something you know. Or you've had detailed conversations with people who lived in the land. And I don't really mind which you want to claim. Either way, people are close enough to the events, uh, close enough to the events geographically to get the information right. You then look and say, well, are they close enough chronologically? And I think one of the arguments uh, to make for this being made uh, by Richard Borkham, I try and <clears throat> make it a bit more punctually, is the argument for um, knowledge of names. Now, we know that we watch films all the time and we forget the names of the characters, but we remember the story of uh, uh, the film. Often we can think of particular actors in films and we know roles they played. We just can't remember the actor's name. Um, And similarly with each other, we often know all sorts of things about people in a room, but we just can't remember their name. Names are the things that drop out most easily in memory because uh, they're pretty arbitrary. And so that's where, um, you know, it's significant that um, we actually have in the Gospels the right sort of names for the time and place, um, for all four of them. And also that those names are. Characterized in the right way, so the more frequent names tend to have a little bit added, like the name Simon, Simon of Cyrene. You might have a um, or Simon Peter. You you have something added onto the name to distinguish it from other ones, and that's happening with the more frequent names, not with the less frequent names. Well, why would you be doing that if you were making up the story anywhere else? Jews, we know, Jews had different names in Alexandria and Egypt, or in Edfu in Egypt. We know that they had. Uh, different names uh, in um, you know, in Turkey, we could, we know they had different names in Rome. We know there are lots of, we got lots of information on Jewish names. So if someone just sitting down and saying, let's have, you know, lots of Jews in our story and let's make some names up for them, they're not going to give them the right sort of names. Now, it's when you add a number of these tests together that you realize that the gospel writers have to be really quite careful. Um, how easily it would be to blunder on a subject of um, legal history or on the weather um, the climate if you are simply making up a story a distance they don't have easy ways to check this sort of thing so this is where um the fact that the gospels are getting these sorts of things consistently right is significant and another whole area is the jewishness of um the Gospels. Now, I only I only really touch on these arguments. I don't really take them very far, um, because I'm just trying to do a very first <laughs> introduction to this. But um, you know what we find is there is real knowledge of rabbinic debate that's going on there behind um, what Jesus says. In fact, I mean people write whole books on the rabbinic background to Jesus's sayings, precisely because they work like that, and that doesn't. Wouldn't be explained if if people are making up these stories at a great remove uh, from Judaism?
0: Excellent. Yeah, I just really appreciated those those points, and uh, I think that is really where this book is gold. Um, and from there, then, the next chapter um, provides an expansion from Lydia McGrews and J.J. And Blunt's work, where um, narrative coincidences in the Gospels are discussed um yeah.
1: yes i would say that their work is the more expansive um and much more expansive um all i do is just touch on uh these things in fact um you know th- there are other, other books um where you have these sort of arguments uh they go back to william paley um Uh, Samuel Lardner slightly before him so over 200 years ago there's a whole history of these there's lots of stuff on the internet Um, McGrew is you know the best modern articulation of this in a single book and all I try and do is just give some simple examples of how um, when you read these accounts they seem to be have these independent minor agreements let's say uh, called undesigned coincidences where It really doesn't look like either author has designed the uh, text to have an agreement with the other. It just is there. And that would be a sign of truthfulness, particularly when you've got quite a lot of these. Um, So I I think that some non-Christians or people not familiar with the Bible will read this chapter, which is a brief chapter, and just not find it very weighty but someone who's a serious bible reader and goes into this argument i think it is very very powerful because it's not just that you have a small number you actually have many of these they you know uh, and um it it then becomes effectively a cumulative argument because you start having data to explain so just as you know skeptics sometimes would throw at a someone who's more positive about the Gospels and say, well, can you explain this? Can you explain this contradiction or whatever it is? um, Actually, this is something which um, someone supportive of the historicity of the Gospels can throw as a sceptic and say, look, how can you explain this? Um, Because, you know, they do need to be explained. Because if you have four accounts which are being uh, carelessly written or uh, written in a falsified way, how would you explain the dovetailing so to give you you know a couple of examples, um we have the story of Mary and Martha in Luke and the story of Mary and Martha and their brother Lazarus in John and these are completely different stories Mary and Martha it 's about how martha's serving and Mary is uh, uh sitting uh listening to jesus and um mary Ma- Martha tries to get Jesus to rebuke Mary for this, and the other story is the story of um when Lazarus dies and is raised by uh, Jesus. And although the stories are very different, I mean, they have these common character elements, um, namely Martha being the uh, welcomer, the um, activist, and Mary being the seated uh, person who is complimentative and more emotional. Um, and this is so striking because, you know, Um, there's no sign that one story could possibly have come from the other. Um, And, you know, I just give a few examples and I say, look, you know, go and look at uh, McGrew's book for some more. Um, But, you know, there are other things. I mean, my favorite chart is probably um, the one where I, uh, (coughs) for the feeding of the 5,000, where I put in a precipitation chart uh, in the middle of a book on the reliability of the Gospels, which is quite fun because, you know, uh, we have the detail from, uh, Mark and from John that the feeding of the 5,000 is <clears throat> talks about the grass or there being much grass or the grass being green. And we happen to know in John that this is set at Passover time. So you can basically look up um, and look at the precipitation from a nearby town and realize, yes, at that time of year, you have had uh, five of the greatest months of precipitation. So again, that little detail fits. Uh, so there are those sorts of things that are... Um, <sighs> Very serendipitous, I mean, you know, and the theories that just say it was all made up don't really go very far. And some people would say, you know, the Christian needs to prove their case. I don't think that's right. I, I, I would say that, um, one of the things that commends the Christian case is its simplicity, it's just beautifully simple. I mean, uh, it's not that, um, you know, the, the theory that the, um, <clears throat> the earth goes around the sun and uh, the one that the sun goes around the earth, uh, they, they both have mathematics in it. But the one that the, where the earth goes around the sun is just so much simpler. You know, smaller objects go around bigger objects. And you think, wow, I, I can say that so simply. It's a beauty to it. And that, for us, is a, a good sign of truth. I mean, and I, I think in scientific theories, um, you should prefer all other things being equal simpler theories and and so here we have christian's able to come and say we have a simple explanation for all of this you know it's the explanation that, that it is basically true uh, and that will account for all of these data points now of course you can explain any one of these away if you want to you know people are clever they can do that uh, but um but actually um we've got a good case
0: right yeah And and addressing the things that people try to explain away, we come then to chapter five, where you ask the great question, do we have Jesus's actual words, where you talk about the standards of ancient standards of quotation and memorization. Um, How do those relate to the transmission of the Gospels, those standards?
1: Well, I mean, I I think, firstly, we've got to think about how we use quotation marks nowadays is a bit different. From how they we um, how things were in the past, because you know quotation marks are less than of our form, are less than five hundred years old. Ancient writings didn't have them, and so the moment we slap them on a text today, we're saying uh, there's been no word added or no word omitted between the beginning and end of the quotation well you know in a context where you don't have that they can be truthful reporters but they don't have to apologize if there's a sequence of five words and they've missed one out um and and whereas we would have to put a dot 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 in the middle um so that that's where our speech marks simply constrain us a little bit um but then you look at the whole question of um <clears throat> memorization where i think there's a good you know Uh, sense that uh, a rabbi and Jesus is sometimes called a rabbi is trying to teach his students I mean when when we call them disciples we often forget that that word means learners it means students so uh, these people have this uh, job where they accompany Jesus not just carrying his bags in fact he probably didn't have bags to carry but they they, well I'm sure they had to carry things sometimes but you know they they, uh, they're not his lackeys they're actually learning from him the whole time. So that's where uh you know you, they'd really not have to be paying much attention if they don't capture um his words at all. Now there are lots of ways that you can get teaching from Jesus through to a gospel without it being corrupted. But some people worry, you know, has it been corrupted because let's face it, Jesus is speaking Aramaic and that the gospels are in Greek. So how do you get it across? And just what I give a little bit of evidence for and other people could give much more evidence for is just that we're dealing with a trilingual um, uh, culture. Not that everyone knows Hebrew and Aramaic and Greek, but there are quite a lot of people who know uh, uh, one uh, each one of those. You come across people all the time. Uh, Jesus has two disciples, Philip and Andrew, with Greek names. <clears throat> Don't underplay the amount of Greek uh, that was used, particularly if you're an itinerant speaker, you come across people who speak lots of different languages. So uh, that's where the idea that Jesus' teaching just simply couldn't make it from Aramaic to Greek um, is very overplayed. Um, and uh, yeah, i, I, I so I, I make a case that um, we're dealing with a bilingual early church and that uh, Jesus' teaching could be either. Things that he taught himself in Greek, or that have been, you know, very early authorized translations.
0: Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, and then and then you focus on the transmission of the texts of the Gospels, um, kind of questioning if they have changed. And I was wondering how how do you combat the postulation that the texts have been altered before the earliest manuscripts?
1: Um, at one level, I don't bother uh you know um so so someone's wanting to um what what is someone doing there are they saying um I can show to you that they were or that they were they are they make i'd want to say well why do you believe that so I'd want to say as far back as we can trace they weren't so are you wanting to tell me that just before uh, the bit we can trace that's when all the exciting thing happened well there's a problem there's a problem with that which is what if you were to use the same argument um living 5 centuries ago when you know the earliest it- a Greek manuscript available to Erasmus was the 12th century, or maybe you say, "Well, we got some earlier Latin manuscripts." But really, you could have, you'd had even more time than today to say that things had gone on. And guess what? As we've discovered, earlier and earlier manuscripts, we haven't been finding that those things have been going on. So really, again, rather than the Christian having to prove their case, the Christian rests the case on the fact that they are arguing something which is simpler. Uh, than the alternative, uh, namely that things haven 't changed now there there are more things we could do with that, for instance, um, <clears throat> if you 've got the four gospel writers let 's say writing in four different towns, um, then the day after um, john 's gospel is written in ephesus let's say um, people in other towns don 't know it 's been written, and for a while, what has to happen is those four gospels circulate independently now. At that early stage, if you wanted to change all four Gospels, you'd have to be a complete genius because you'd have to know that those four Gospels were going to become the Gospels. You'd have, to, you'd have to travel in an age when traveling is difficult, going around changing people's copies. So this becomes logistically difficult as well as you'd need to have a level of foresight, you know, to have prophecy, which is just ridiculous. Uh, but, of course, once things have been circulating for a while then changing gospels becomes harder because there are more of them in circulation and you don't even changing a text is not an easy thing you know um every manuscript you have um is written out on leather it takes a while or or papyrus it, it takes a while to do it um you wouldn't even know w- what differences there were between gospels um because you can't search them electronically and you can't obtain everyone else's copies. So you'd be doing this great conspiracy a little bit in the blind, you know, to be able to do this. So, so it just becomes quite impractical. And you say, look, if, if you want to believe something extraordinarily complex, you can. Um, you know, you're perfectly free to, but don't tell me it's very convincing. So, um, and, and also make the case, you know, that... We've edited our own Greek New Testament at uh, Tidna House uh, here in Cambridge, and, you know, I've spent a lot of time on that. And what's interesting is, you know, we've got manuscripts of the opening of John's gospel that probably third century, um, nine centuries before the earliest ones available to Erasmus when he did the first printing 500 years ago. And what's so interesting is you take the first 14 verses of John's gospel and we don't have a single letter different from his, even though our manuscripts are so much earlier. And so that just shows me the degree of reliability of transmission. It's not that every manuscript agrees on every detail; and they don't. Every manuscript differs from every other manuscript. That's what happens when you copy by hand. But the so- the sense that that means that somehow um, the wording, the details of the wording, are lost, uh, just isn't uh, isn't valid.
0: Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And then you move to a brief chapter in chapter seven addressing seeming contradictions. And this is one of the strengths I love about this book is how you bring up questions that need to be answered with each chapter. Um, I just think that's very perceptive. And so, how do you how do you use John's gospel um, within this chapter to illustrate how we how we kind of deal with these seeming contradictions?
1: Yeah, well, this is uh, one of the chapters that some people criticized in the book because I try to deal with the subject of contradictions in the Gospels in, guess what, five pages with quite a bit of space on them. Um, you know, and some people say it's too brief and some people say it should have been left out. And my thought is, look, this is just a taster. Uh, and what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to say, look, people often have, if you like, the the so-called believer on one side, the skeptic on the other, and they try and score points with each other uh, about who can make the best case. And um, that's where I think sometimes this subject of contradiction sits. That is that um, someone called a skeptic, I mean, I keep on saying called a skeptic because I don't think skeptics really are very skeptical, Um, but uh, someone called a skeptic um, says, oh, here's a contradiction. And, uh, you know, believer scuttles off to try and find an answer and it becomes like a point scoring exercise now I want to say well hang on what if Jesus himself taught using contradictions that is uh you know he's he's a teacher who uses parables which are um stories which are, are have a hidden layer in them um you know uh, so that's one thing uh, he uses riddles why can't he use his pa- use paradoxes and formal contradictions and the moment you start asking that you suddenly realize that for a skeptic to show that there's one passage in the bible which is formally contradicting another passage in the bible doesn't do anything like the amount of work they need it to do to show that the thing's not true because if jesus or any yeah ancient teacher could use paradox why can't God do that across the whole of the scriptures and that is why can't he uh, write something which is in a very puzzling relationship with another thing so just to give an example uh, John's gospel has got a pile of these but um, John 12 47 Jesus says if anyone hears my words and does not keep them I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. So they're very clear. I did not come to judge in the world. And then John 9, 39, he says, for judgment, I came into this world. Well, there you've got, you know, um, at the linguistic level, they are um, just opposites. Um, but can they have a... Uh, meaning which is reconciled. Well, I think if you read John's gospel, it's fairly obvious that they do. Uh, At the one level, um, Jesus is saying he didn't come to judge the world, but to save the world. So his primary purpose is to do with uh, saving. And yet at the same time, his arrival um, brings in this um, bifurcation, if you like, as people Uh, either embrace him or reject him which is necessarily judgment and is you know uh, something that results from him coming and i think you can look at these um texts together and, and draw out a richer meaning and there are actually lots of these i mean famously between john and first john so john's gospel for god so loved the world you know the famous verse john three sixteen, <clears throat> and then it's opposite in one john two first uh, john 2 15 do not love the world or the things in the world if anyone loves the world the love of the father is not in him and you know th- this is very interesting at the one passage it seems to be saying that god uh loves the world and the other passages saying look if you love the world that's really the sort of thing god wouldn't do um, <laughs> um and of course it makes you think what do you mean by love what do you mean by world because you know in john 3 16 it's clearly god giving his son for the world um out of uh, a benevolent love in the other case in first john 2 it's about loving in the sort of loving to get and the world is um you know worldly pleasures and and and, and so on so that that that's The way the the texts work, and you're meant to think more deeply about these. So I suppose I hope in these five pages, just to get people to think a little bit more. I might actually, uh, you know, um, expand in some other writing about on the whole subject. Um, But uh, I'm never intending to expand this book. If I do a second edition, I will try and take out as many words as I put in, because you know, uh, there's absolutely no point making a longer book. Um, because, you know, I think part of the um, helpfulness of this is it doesn't uh, ask readers to do too much. It doesn't ask readers to, you know, uh, give up a week in order to engage with it. Um, so I want people to just get the overview and the sense of, you know, how there's there's a good briefcase that we made for the reliability of the Gospels.
0: Right. Precisely. Yeah. And then. Chapter 8 is where you've held off on dealing with miraculous material uh, found in the Gospels. So chapter 8 kind of lands the plane of this book's argument. And yeah, I'd love just to hear about what is most convincing for you in dealing with miracles and how the Gospels claim that they happened.
1: Yeah. So I think a lot of people, you know, if you start uh, too early with miracles, people can just be put off and they think, well, I can't believe in miracles. And I wanted people to engage with the fact that there are data points, there are pieces of information in the Gospels that really demand an explanation. And uh, they can readily be explained by the normal sorts of, um, you know, arguments we'd use for reliability of anything else. And just to have that, as a fixed point before we then go to this question of miracles, now people are offended by the idea of miracles sometimes because if you can have pixies or fairies or angels or Jesuses uh, suddenly changing things that seem to be the regular scientific laws, then people are worried well couldn't you know, how can anything be safe? You know all of our scientific experiments would need to be redone, and so on uh, that 's a complete mistake, of course, about what Christians are saying because Christians are not arguing for random miracles. Christians are arguing for miracles in a semiotic pattern, which is a posh way of saying they actually signal a message. And whether people are talking about this in terms of um, their own uh, prayer life and uh, the way God answers their prayers and so on, they're actually arguing that there is a meaningful pattern to this, and particularly in the person of Jesus. So uh, one thing I want to use is the whole argument from the old testament now this is not an argument that sophisticated apologists tend to use nowadays tends to be the less sophisticated ones that use the argument from prophecy and how improbable the prophecies are and then the more uh, upmarket apologists if i say you know like to use philosophical arguments and arguments for the resurrection and so on but but actually the early church was very keen on uh the argument from prophecy but you just got to be clear what you mean by prophecy. You don't mean something that allows you to map out the future in a detailed chronological way. You're rather um, saying prophecy is more like the whodunit of a mystery film where when you get to the grand explanation of where everything happened you suddenly go back in your mind over the whole film and say oh all the clues were all the way through and how could i miss them um and so what that means is it shows you yes the person who wrote the plot really conceived of these things so they fitted together um and the way a lot of prophecy works in the bible is like that uh, now of course it's so that when the future happens, you know, God planned it all along. It wasn't that he's had to change his plan, taken by surprise or anything like that. And so what I argue is that, um, you know, taking a spring from um, the opening of John's gospel, where it describes Jesus as the word uh, who's with God and uh, was God and became flesh, that the, uh, he is the communication from God, uh, the message from God, and that um, effectively, we should see him as the point of all order. So it's not that his miracles about him, such as the resurrection, disturb the nice, neat pattern of science, uh, but rather that they actually make a pattern. Um, So we're not asking people to give up their belief in nice, neat science and believe in chaotic Christianity. No, rather we're saying uh, that the... uh, most coherent explanation for everything including the data of the Gospels um, is um, Jesus Christ uh, as the Son of God and that there are just these things in the Old Testament which fit uncannily well with uh, Jesus' life. Now one explanation for this is well the Gospel writers essentially wrote into the Gospels things which fitted with the Old Testament. And that's, you know, uh, often claimed. Um, The the problem is that some of it just um, is hard to do that with. So, for instance, Jesus dying at the time of Passover, as attested not just in the Gospels, but also um, in the Jewish Talmud, um, again, is of all of the times of the year, the most convenient to sweep up. Old Testament symbolism, uh, you know, is time to die is is the time when the Jews are celebrating their greatest deliverance. So you start getting uh, simply too much convenience, I find, with the um, way the Old Testament fits with Jesus. But also, um, it's when you then combine that with the resurrection arguments, you see, a resurrection argument you can make from a couple of points. One is the empty tomb. The other is the witnesses to having seen Jesus from the, from the risen from the dead which seem really to be independent of the story about the empty tomb um because there are so many different resurrection appearance claims that have to be made and so you can't have them all originating from uh, you know uh, one or just one or two people um and uh when you put those two together you've got a very good whodunit but it's the fact that that the empty tomb and the resurrection appearances aren't just about any old random person they're actually about a person whose life fits with this remarkable book um and the old testament would be remarkable Even if the New Testament never came, I mean, you know, um, uh, it really is the the, uh, most remarkable continuous history. Uh, There's no national literature that says as much negative about the people group from which it originates as the Old Testament. Um, The way it uh, has a consistent uh, evaluation of God as transcendent over against uh, humans as sinful—all of these things are just remarkable—and and 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 Jesus fitting with that so i I think um that's the way you sort of make a cumulative case for um miracles but at the end of the day recognizing that if people want to explain things away you know they can
0: yeah absolutely well thank you so much dr williams we appreciate you um donating your time to us um and before we close why don't you um share what you're currently working on
1: well, I, I'm uh, actually doing a little bit of um, uh, preparation for a debate uh, with a, a chap called Bart Ehrman you may have he- heard of, um, so uh, getting ready to debate him on the subject of, of the reliability of the Gospels. Uh, but at the same time, I'm also you know, working on uh, the ongoing question of the spelling of the New Testament, which is one of my um, passions, so making sure that we, we spell our words right.
0: Wow. Well, that sounds excellent. Well, thank you very much for listening to this edition of New Books and Biblical Studies. I'm your host, Jonathan Wright, and until next time, take up and read. Take care.